you have your Bibles, go ahead, turn with me to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. It's hard to believe we have uh, spent 12 weeks, 12 weeks in the post-exilic books of the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We're wrapping up today with the final couple of chapters, Esther chapter 9 and 10. And this series is wrapping up the messages that we've titled Hope After the Storm. And as we think about that, as we think about this idea of hope after the storm, it's, it's not just a wishful thinking hope, it's the hope that's described in scriptures. It is a confident anticipation. But I want to just remind ourselves of two things before we jump into our key points. God was faithful to the remnant, those that returned to Israel, those that returned back to Jerusalem and, and rebuilt the wall and, and the temple, God was faithful to them. More specifically, he was faithful because one of the things that he did in that midst was he protected a man by the name of Zerubbabel. His name actually means born in Babylon. And Zerubbabel is going to be one of the great grandfathers that's going to lead us to the lineage of Christ. But not only was he faithful to the remnant, he was faithful to the diaspora, those that were scattered among the provinces and we see that uh, more specifically in the book of Esther. We see how Haman attempted to annihilate all of the Jewish people, but God protected them. In fact, he protected them not only uh, by saving their lives, but he used them in such a way for his glory in the long term to be a precursor to Christian missions. So this morning we're going to wrap up with Esther chapter 9 and 10, and we're very appropriately going to conclude uh, with the Lord's Supper. So let's begin with key point number one, and then we'll read from Esther chapter 9. Key point number one this morning is this, may the Lord find us faithful where others have failed. May the Lord find us faithful where others have failed. Let's pick up Esther chapter 9 verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who had sought their harm and no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame uh, spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus, the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of a sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vahizatha 
the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in the Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow what according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. You know, when I read through those first 16 verses of this chapter, it is a really, really difficult passage. It's a difficult passage. It, it, one of the reasons that makes it so difficult is the loss of life. When you start reading uh, the numbers of people here that have, that have died, the number of people that uh, were enemies of God and therefore enemies of the Jews. And it's a difficult passage. As Christians, when we read uh, this passage, it, it creates a tension within us, doesn't it? I mean, you read through it and you're going, this is difficult to read. This is difficult to understand so much death and destruction. I'm reminded that death is always a hard thing to watch. Death is a hard thing to watch. I was reminded several years ago, um, Carson was given a cat for his birthday. Uh, long story short, um, uh, I was asked prior to, can we give Carson a cat for his birthday? And I said, no, I'm allergic to cats. And then come his birthday, here, here's a cat. And so we ended up with this cat in our home. And uh, the cat was solid black. Carson named it Midnight. In fact, it, this, this cat ended up, uh, instead of going with Carson, it stayed at my home. Uh, when I moved, cat went with me. Uh, there were so many uh, challenges there, but when I think about this cat, I was the one that always made the jokes. I was the one that was always making the jokes about, um, and this cat sure has nine lives. It's taking advantage of every single one of them. Uh, this cat uh, survived cancer. Uh, this cat was run over by a vehicle. Uh, Cheryl is pointing from the back that you were driving, I admit. Uh, it was not intentional. Uh, and I'm thinking this cat is going to, it's going to use every single one of its nine lives. And I assure you it did. 
over and over and over and over. And I often joked, I was like, oh, it, it got to such a point where uh, you, you would think, by the way that I joked about it, I just could not wait until the day that this cat died, right? But then that day came. Cheryl and I had been gone for a little while. We were on a, on a trip, and we came home, and the cat was, was on its last leg, last breath. We sat there together, uh, Cheryl and I, with the cat on our couch in our living room. Death is always a difficult thing to watch. So here I am, after years of joking about a cat that won't die, moved to tears over a cat that I did not like simply because I recognize death is not easy to watch. It never is. So when we read this passage that we just went through in Esther chapter 9, and we get it, these are people that are enemies of God, but it's still, there's some tension there. These people died. Death is a hard thing to watch. But let me share a few things to consider about the context. And, and it really doesn't eliminate that tension. I, I think that tension is good. I think it's good for us to read through that and go, oh my gosh, these people were slaughtered. And I think it's good for us to have that tension. I don't ever want us to get to a point as, as Christians or, or those who follow the Lord to, to take delight in the demise of others, even if they are, even if they are the enemy of God. We want, we want to see people turn to the Lord. So it doesn't eliminate that tension. But here's what it does. It helps us to understand it better. The first thing I want to do to give some context to this is remember Haman. Remember that Haman was described as an Agagite? You remember we've talked about that a couple of times over the past few weeks, an Agagite. I made reference and told you that Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Well, the Agag was not just the king of the Amalekites. This was about 500 years before the time of Esther. Agog was the king of the Amalekites 500 years before the time of Esther. And Haman is described as an Agagite. To show that he wasn't just an Amalekite, but he was a descendant of the king of the Amalekites. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that he was a descendant of Agog himself? Well, again, 500 years before the time of Esther, King Saul was told that he was to bring judgment upon the Amalekites. In fact, they told them to, to, to take out all of the Amalekites, every single one of them, man, woman, child, even their livestock. Do not even, do not even uh, spare that. Don't even keep the animals for yourselves. The king Saul had all of them killed except for one person, the king, the king of the Amalekites, Agog himself. Now, even though Samuel would have Agog killed later, it was not before Agog had a son. 
some 500 years later, one of his child's descendants is named Haman, the Agagite. What Saul was unwilling to do brought about the events of Esther. If Saul had just been obedient from the very beginning and said, yes, Lord, I will be obedient to you even if it means taking out the king of the Amalekites, then Esther, the book of Esther, doesn't happen because Haman doesn't happen because there is no threat. But I want us to understand that centuries earlier, all of those things took place. And may the Lord find us faithful ourselves where others who have gone before us, like King Saul, have failed. Samuel was faithful to do what King Saul would not do. And centuries later, uh, they were still suffering the consequences. Another thing that we have to remember is, and it's, again, this doesn't ease that tension too much, but it helps us to give context to it, is that we have to remember that these are not innocent people. These are the sworn enemies of God. They wanted to see God's people eliminated. But in God's sovereignty, their day of judgment had come. And yet there's still even another thing that gives us some context that helps us to understand this passage a little bit better. It's a phrase that, we, that was used three times in the passage that we just read. It's used in verses 10, verse 15, and verse 16. One of the hermeneutics of studying Scripture, one of the hermeneutics is uh, when you're reading Scripture, look for repetition. Look for something that's said not just once, but look for something that's said two times, three times, four times. And whenever you see something that's mentioned three times, recognize that is very, very significant. So here we have a phrase, not just a word, not just a word or two, but an entire phrase that's repeated three times, verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. But they did not lay hand on the plunder. So when those three things are repeated, it's, it's drawing our attention to it. It's saying this is important. Well, what was its significance? Well, we have to remind ourselves when King Saul was fighting the Amalekites, they were instructed not to take their animals. In fact, they were told to even slaughter the animals. Now, why was that important? Why did they, even in King Saul's time, why did they not lay hand on the plunder. The reason is to let everyone know that the lives that were being taken were from the judgment of God, not for personal gain. If it were for personal gain, then they would have taken all the plunder. They would have taken the animals. They would have brought them into the camp. They would have spared whatever they wanted. They would have taken the gold, they would have taken all the riches for themselves and said, oh, look at all the plunder. But God is saying, to, and, they, and three times in this passage, they didn't lay a hand on the plunder, just like at King Saul's time. Why? Because this was not about themselves. This was not about personal gain. This was about the judgment of God. Now, this is in complete contrast 
to Haman's de decree. If you remember when Haman made his decree, the very motivator, the primary motivator to take out the Jewish people was that you could take all of their plunder that you wanted of theirs. So it was, you know, on this particular day, at this particular hour, we are going to eliminate all of the Jewish people and take the plunder of theirs for yourselves. I think that helps us understand the context just a little bit better. It doesn't, eat, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate that tension of death and destruction, but it helps us to understand that there is an appointed time in which God's judgment is coming. And that in that moment, God's judgment is going to happen. And it doesn't mean that we have to like how, how, all of it. It doesn't mean that we have to like the death and destruction. But it helps us to understand and put it into context that it wasn't for personal gain. But keep this in mind. One day, the judgment of God comes to everyone. We don't even get to determine when that day comes, nor do we get to determine how God carries out that judgment. The only thing that we can do to prepare for that day is to make sure that we have Christ in our lives.